Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Thank you for uh, joining me today. And thanks for the guys who showed up for Guide Talk. Awfully nice to have them uh, on the panel every week so faithfully. I appreciate them very much. My guest today uh, now is uh, Dr. Chris Bruno. He has written about five books, and he's uh, a really smart guy because not only does he write books, but he once pastored in Hawaii. So if you ever, you know, Spend any time in Minnesota, you know, if you can get a job in Hawaii, you're a very smart person. But uh, the book that we're going to talk about today is called Biblical Theology According to the Apostles, How the Earliest Christians Told the Story of Israel. And this is going to be a fascinating discussion because I sometimes wonder how the earliest Christians in their practice of biblical theology, how they understood it and how they communicated it. So, Chris, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much. Uh, It's great to be back with you. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this, because how did the apostles uh, understand the Old Testament? Yeah. You know, before we even talk about the question, I think that's an important question to ask that we don't always tend to think about. How did the New Testament writers read their Old Testaments? Because a lot of Christians have trouble with the Old Testament. Uh, they, they're, they're not quite sure what to do with different parts of the Old Testament, or, or they're not quite sure how to put the whole thing together. And I think a, a good on-ramp toward that is asking the question, how did the New Testament writers read the Old Testament? And then specifically, how did they tell the, the story of Israel? Because there are a few key places in the New Testament where we can kind of see them retell the whole story. And I think those can be pretty instructive for us. Yeah, see, Chris, if I was a really good radio host, I would have asked you those questions. But you asked them for me, so thank you for doing my job. Now oh, yeah. answer them. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, if you had them queued up and ready to go, I don't want to steal your thunder. But um, I would love to, to just jump into the New Testament and, and maybe look at one or two examples, and then that can get us uh, get us going toward uh, toward answering some and, of these questions. Yeah, I love that. And actually, actually, we we could start at the very beginning of the New Testament, in the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Now, if people are getting into their yearly Bible reading plan, and maybe they're reading a chapter in Genesis in a chapter in Matthew on January 1st or whatever it is, there, there's going to be a tendency when they get to Matthew to skip about the first 17 or 18 verses. Okay. Why is that? This is, this is a genealogy. Okay. It's just, it's just Jesus' family tree. But I think if people are paying close attention and reading it carefully, what, what they'll see is it's not just a genealogy, but it's also giving us a little insight into the story of Israel. Matthew's adding a few details along the way that help us to see how he is understanding the story of the Old Testament. So so Matthew 1.1 begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
So even there, he's pointing us back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament has all these genealogies. I think Genesis 10 or so is the first one where it talks about you know the, the genealogy of Noah. So important figures in the Old Testament get these genealogies. We see them um, throughout First and Second Chronicles. You see it at the end of Ruth for King David. You see it several different places. And he highlights three key figures here, right? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right there, we can see a lot. We can see Matthew wants us to understand the story of Jesus that he's about to tell us as not a disconnected story uh, from the rest of the Bible, as not something that doesn't have uh, a, a clear connection to the Old Testament, but instead it's directly linked to David, King David, and Abraham, the patriarch, who we might call the, the father of Israel. Mm-hmm. So, he, so he wants us to understand how Jesus fits into this family line. And he begins to, to tell the story, starting with Abraham and, and highlighting the, these generations along the way. And one important clue or one important practice that we should uh, pick up on when we're reading these genealogies is to notice where he adds extra detail. So our tendency might be to just kind of glaze over, just say so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, on and on we go. But at a few key points, Matthew adds these little details that help us see the big picture. And along the way, he adds a few other details that help us see that uh, th- there's an important step in Israel's history that Jesus has come to address. You see, he, ta- he, he talks about Jesus, David, Abraham, and then he goes to Abraham, David, and then instead of going to Jesus, he brings up the exile. And so when he brings up the exile, that raises a lot of questions for the first century readers, and it also should maybe raise some questions for us as 21st century readers. All right. Sorry, so, I thought you were about to jump in there. Well, I was going to jump in. I was wondering, uh, when you talked about some uh, details that Matthew puts in, wh- what are some of those details, or did you just share them? Yeah. No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, we haven't... L- let me go to some of those. So okay, as you're great. reading through, you have uh, so-and-so so-and-so, 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 Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah. And then then he adds this little tidbit, uh, Judah and his brothers. Mm. Okay, so, so that should flag something for us. Um, and it, it should cause us, really what should, this should cause us to do is go back to the Old Testament, if we're not familiar with it, or at least re- reconsider it if we know these stories. So Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the brother of Joseph, so there's something that Matthew wants to highlight there for us to remind us that Jesus was the son, the great, 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 great grandson of Judah. Of all of the 12 patriarchs, Judah maybe isn't the one you'd expect. And then as we go on reading, we see another detail that Matthew throws in there. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So Tamar um, was Judah's well, Judah's daughter-in-law. And in Genesis uh, 37, we have this story that Matthew is highlighting for us, a story that uh, probably we're not too excited to teach in Sunday school right. of uh, Tamar uh, 
Uh, Well, I'll put it this way. Judah, uh, in Genesis 38, uh, Judah became the father to his own grandson. Right. Uh, And uh, and Tamar, but Tamar, at the end of the chapter, uh, Judah says Tamar is more righteous than him. Mm -hmm. Without without going into all the details of the story, uh, essentially Tamar intercedes to save the line of promise. And so if it, because Judah's two older sons had died without children, and he wasn't about to let his younger son marry Tamar because he thought he would die too. So there, there was the risk of the, the line of Judah dying out, in which we discover in Matthew is the line of promise. So we find that the, this Gentile woman named Tamar in G- Genesis 38 was able to, to intercede into the line of promise. And so God used her to preserve the line, to preserve the line of Jesus, the line of the Messiah. And we actually see something similar a couple of more times in Matthew's genealogy in uh, cha- uh, excuse me, verse 5. You're down a few generations. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And uh, so we have two other uh, women introduced into the line, Rahab and Ruth. Now Rahab is, uh, if you remember, she's in Joshua two, when Joshua and Caleb were in the land, and uh, excuse me, not, the spies were coming in the land, and she hid them from. Um, from those who are searching them out, trying mm-hmm. to kill them. So again, we have a Gentile woman interceding to preserve God's people in the line of promise so that through her, the the family tree of the Messiah continues. You see the same thing with Ruth. Ruth in the story of Ruth, uh, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament uh, intercedes and she ends up marrying Boaz. She steps out in faith um, and the line of promise continues through her. So Matthew's flagging for us, as he tells this story, three different women who acted in faith to preserve uh, the line of the Messiah, to save God's people, essentially. And, and through them, God continued his saving plan. So while he's telling us this story, he's bringing in these extra details that we should be familiar with, or go back and re-familiarize yourself with. You know, Chris, uh, in a patriarchal society, it seems amazing, but not because it's God, that he would allow four women to be in his genealogy. Because in the patriarchal society, you probably would leave women out, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's another point. Uh, Thank you for raising that, that in a, a patriarchal society like that, Whenever a woman is named in the in the genealogy, not not just incidental details, but also whenever a woman is named in the genealogy, there's something something going on there. Mm-hmm. Something that the author is wanting to point out for us. So at the very beginning of the gospel, it's reminding us that God uh, uses men and, and women to accomplish His purposes. Yes, in their distinct roles and and all, all that sort of thing. But God uh, uses men and women to accomplish his purposes, his saving purposes, to advance his kingdom, and even in these uh, in these cases, 
to preserve the line that Jesus the Messiah would be born from. So as we read the Old Testament, we should pick up on these clues that, that Matthew uh, is showing us in his genealogy. Then we, we look at those women. We've got uh, an incest victim. We have a prostitute. We have an, uh, an unwed mother. I mean, these are, it's just amazing that this is in the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, these are women who, who were not just women who in, in that day and age were kind of second-class citizens to begin with. Right. But, but we have women who were, you know, in particularly difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Women who were destitute and, and really desperate for the Lord to act on their behalf. So they stepped out in faith. All, all of these women stepped out in faith, and God not only used it in their generation— but he used it as part of this overall plan to uh, create a family tree from which Jesus the Messiah would come. Mm-hmm. So, so Matthew's telling us this story along the way, giving us you know this kind of boring genealogy from our perspective. He's he's flagging these things for us that we should pick up on then as we read the Old Testament ourselves begin to put some of the pieces together. I like, yeah. Dr. Chris Bruno is my guest. He's the Associate Academic Dean and Associate Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem Seminary. He's also written five books. The one we're chatting about today is called Biblical Theology According to the Apostles, How the Earliest Christians Told the Story of Israel. We'll take a short break and be right back. Dr. Chris Bruno, who's written a number of books, five altogether, I think. Is it five or more than five, Chris? You ambitious um, person, you. I, yeah, either five or six. I yeah. I think if you, if you count my, uh, some of my academic stuff, it might be six, but I have to go back and double check. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So we're, we're learning today um, about the way the, um, the apostles would be looking and viewing the the Old Testament, which is fascinating, and I love the genealogy. Uh, I, I love you taking us through this. Uh, where do we go from here? Yeah, maybe we can jump to uh, Acts and uh, spend a little time in, in Acts 7, Stephen's speech, and, and maybe make a, a few different observations uh, from a place where the the earliest Christians—now, Stephen's not an apostle, but he's part of inspired scripture—so uh, we can look at a place where the New Testament tells the story of Israel. And Stephen tells it, uh, you know, it's a long chapter. So if we sat down and read it, it would take the rest of our time probably together, um, which might be valuable, but may- maybe I can make a few observations yeah, for us do. that might help help us uh, become better readers of both the Old and New Testaments. Now, Stephen stands up, and if if we're not familiar with the context, Stephen is one of the early Christians, one of the first deacons appointed in Acts 6, and he stands up at, at the temple, and it's basically giving a defense of the gospel. Um, and to do it, he walks through the history of Israel. He begins with Abraham, when God called Abraham in verse 2. And then as he goes through and narrates the story of Israel, 
he focuses on a few key figures. Now, he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob was the father of the 12 patriarchs. We mentioned that when we were in Matthew, Mm -hmm. that Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. So Stephen, instead of picking up on Judah, highlights one of the other brothers, the, the, the one who's probably more familiar to many of us, Joseph. And he tells the story of Joseph, which probably many of, the, of your listeners know how uh, the, the patriarchs who were jealous of jo- Joseph sold him into slavery, and God used Joseph to, uh, to preserve not only the Egyptians, but also his family. So again, we, we just like we saw back in Matthew 1, we see God using, uh, uh, using one of his servants to preserve the line of promise. But what's unique about Joseph is that he was rejected by his brothers, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're jealous of him. They sell him into slavery. So he was rejected by his brothers, cast off from them, but then he was later vindicated we might even say he was vindicated and exalted. I would say so, yes. So you see Joseph uh, setting a pattern that, that Stephen wants to trace throughout Israel's history. That is the, the rejected and vindicated servant of the Lord. Th- then he, he moves from the time of Joseph and the Abrahamic covenant to the next covenant, the next major covenant in the history of Israel, that is the Mosaic covenant or the Sinai covenant. And he focuses on Moses. And again, he tells the story of Moses, goes into a lot of detail, um, almost as much detail as the Old Testament itself does in telling the story of how when, when Moses was brought up in Pharaoh's uh, house, when he was 40 years old, he saw some of his fellow Israelites being wronged, and he struck down the Egyptian. And the response of his fellow Israelites was to reject him. Now, uh, uh, when we read the Old Testament uh, and we see Moses strike down the Egyptians, it's, it's not clear whether that was right or wrong, whether it was good or bad. And I'm not even sure if Stephen's answering that question for us. Mm-hmm. But what he is, what he is answering is the question of, how is Moses like Joseph? Well, he was rejected by his brothers and then sent away. So verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. That is the burning bush. So again, we see the same pattern, right? Mm-hmm. We have the the servant of the Lord who was rejected by his brothers and later vindicated and given some a place of exaltation. Moses led the people out of the promised land, or excuse me, out of slavery into the promised land. And then Stephen continues on through the same, uh, telling the story of Israel, highlighting the prophets. So, uh, saying that not one particular prophet, but rather uh, this pattern holds true for all the prophets uh, as he comes to the conclusion in verse 51, uh, or excuse me, verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
So he's saying that there's this pattern that you see throughout the Old Testament. Now, now I'm, I'm skipping over a lot of details. There's a lot more we could say in the story, in which uh, we do say in the book. Uh, but I just want to highlight this pattern for us. We see throughout the Old Testament this pattern of the rejected and vindicated servant of the Lord, and it culminates with the Lord Jesus, right? You mm -hmm. see the same pattern on display. Jesus is rejected by his brothers. Uh, his, his, well, his, his actual brothers didn't believe in him during his life, and then his kinsmen, uh, the way John puts it, is he came into his own and his own did not receive him. He was re rejected. And, and not simply cast off in prison or in exile like Moses, but he suffered the agony of the cross because he was rejected by his brothers. And, and, but in, just like Moses, just like Joseph, God used that rejection and through it saved his people in the greatest possible way. So Jesus is the ultimate rejected and vindicated servant of the Lord. So another thing that the, the New Testament teaches us about reading the Old Testament is we should see these patterns of Jesus. Uh, these, some, some people call them types of Jesus, where uh, the Old Testament figures are pointing us forward to Jesus, not just in kind of specific prophecies, which there are a lot of those, but also in kind of the shape of their lives. We, we learn to, to read in a way that teaches us to anticipate Jesus. So we have this pattern of the servant of God is rejected by his brothers. He, he suffers unrighteously. But God, through that suffering, saves his people and accomplishes his purposes. And, and the amazing thing about Stephen is that the, the pattern actually continues it's not just Stephen, or excuse me, it's not just Jesus, but Stephen himself is a picture of this. Mm -hmm. He's rejected by his brothers, and he's vindicated by the Lord Jesus as he sees him at the right hand of the Father. So that, that teaches us how we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we're united to Jesus. And so we, we should not be surprised when the same kind of things happen to us as we are rejected by those around us with the expectation that, like the Lord Jesus, we will one day be, be vindicated. If mm -hmm. we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. So the servant is not greater than his master, and so we, we are a part of that pattern as well. That's a great reminder, Chris. So appreciate you coming on the program. This book is a, a wonderful a read for understanding Israel's Old Testament history as it's summarized uh, in the New Testament writers. Chris Bruno has been my guest, and the book, again, is called Biblical Theology According to the Apostles, How the Earliest Christians Told the Story of Israel. Chris, thanks for doing the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Bill. It's always nice to hear your voice. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Bye. All right. Thank you. So we're going to take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Mitch, Mitch Glazer will be joining the show. He's an absolute delight. President of Chosen People Ministries out of New York City. Be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. 
It is so nice to have uh, Dr. Mitch Glazer back on the program. He is the president of Chosen People Ministries, and their their doctrinal position hasn't changed no, like ever. I, they believe with all their heart that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel. And that simple message of his death and resurrection has the power to transform the lives of Jews and Gentiles. Mitch, welcome back. Hey, Bill. Shalom. Wonderful to be back. Shalom to you. Um, thank you for doing the program. Did you? It's nice to have you back on. You didn't lose a bet or anything, did you? I didn't what? You didn't lose a bet or anything, did you? <laughs> now you got to do Bill Arnold's show. I won the bet. I won the bet, Bill. Oh, God. I love being with you. Oh, it's so nice. It's so nice. We've got some good friends in common, and it's always nice to, to hear what's going on. I do want to talk today, Mitch, if you don't mind, because it's such an important topic of how we reach out to friends we have and acquaintances and coworkers who are Jewish, because we, yeah. we want them to know the truth. And there's sometimes um, my experience I had once was the person was very religious about going to synagogue, but didn't really have any relationship with God. But there's almost this this cultural affiliation with synagogue, but there was a complete absence of God. Sure. I was I I, that's exactly how I was raised, Bill. I was raised in a really a wonderful Jewish home in New York City. And my grandparents were ultra orthodox. My on my mom's side, my father's parents were kind of secular, and so when it came to religion, studying for my bar mitzvah, etc. Well, it was natural that my mother's parents were the ones who cared, and they went out. So I went to a very orthodox uh, synagogue and was trained that way. And honestly, I love the history. I even love the Bible, but I just didn't believe in God. And uh, my father certainly didn't believe in God. My mother did, but she was just more traditional. And, and uh, so that's the way I was raised. But I mean, we were very Jewish, celebrated the Jewish holidays. We lived in a kind of a Jewish bubble. Everybody I knew was Jewish. and uh, But we never talked about God or about spiritual things, unlike the ultra-Orthodox who do. But we were modern Orthodox and uh, probably pretty secular when you come right down to it. Mm-hmm. So when did you start to hear about Jesus? Well, this is this is a this is of course a good a good story. I love it. Uh, and um, but let let me hone in on one part of it because it, you know, in light of your initial comment, it really makes a good point. Uh, so I went from being nice Jewish boy to very very bad Jewish boy, <laughs> and my parents didn't deserve me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. And so I went out after I was I turned 17, dropped out of college. I went when I was a little younger, went out to the West Coast and didn't have a flower in my in my hair or uh, didn't didn't believe in flower power. I was just in it for the good time. So I became sort of a hippie drug user and all those kind of terrible things. And then um, one of my uh, friends, a young woman, also from New York City, uh, came out to see us and kind of spent two days with us, said, you guys are, you guys are worse than, than, than ever. And, uh, and so she hitchhiked to Northern California and then from Northern California to Southern Oregon. She got picked up by two ex-biker Gentile Christians who were living in a Christian commune in Southern Oregon. And they pick up this Jewish girl. And of course, they never went to a chosen people seminar and had a witness sensitively to Jewish people. So they're just 
going down the road, and the woman turns around and says, so, honey, are you saved? Hmm. And my friend said, from what? <laughs> Jews, Jews don't know the lingo. And she mm-hmm. said, from what? And she says, no, no, do you believe that Jesus is the, is Jesus is, is the Messiah? You know, do you, you believe in Jesus. That's how you get saved. She says, oh, no, 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 I'm Jewish. And that was supposed to end the conversation. But these guys were only believers for two weeks, so they had no idea that this was supposed to stop the conversation. And so they just egged them on. And so she, they shared the gospel for 12 hours on their way to Southern Oregon, and, I, and, and they may have had two hours of information. And, <laughs> and by the time they got to Southern Oregon, in, in, to a place called Coos Bay, Oregon, off of Highway 101 North, um, my friend kind of moved in with them into this Christian commune. She didn't know what she was getting herself self into. And, you know, within a very short time, she accepted Jesus. And it was these, it was this Gentile Christian couple who didn't know a lot, but they were so fervent, they were so vibrant, and they didn't know anything else but love because their lives had been mm. transformed. And so they did what Paul said in Romans 11, verse 11. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they, referring to Israel? May it never be. But by their transgression, the national rejection of Jesus at his first coming by the Jewish leaders, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, and then he adds to make them jealous. And my friend was made jealous by these two sincere, young, Gentile believers who didn't know a lot about Jewish people, but knew that they had a Jewish girl in the car that they loved because Jesus loved her. Uh, Mitch, that's just such a phenomenal story. I just love it. The, some of the best stories I always hear, there's always a leading with love. There's always a, um, I have time for you. I want to listen to you. I want to know you. I want to be your friend, and I want to love you. Absolutely. Besides, she was held captive in the car. Yeah, that, that, that point, too. <laughs> yeah, that had a lot to do with it as well. But, but I love out. the love part. It, it, it's really true. And so if, if in addressing the question, you know, um, how do you really reach a Jewish person? Well, I mean, Jewish people are people just like anybody else. And so the basic fundamental needs are, are the same. But there is something that is quite different about Jewish people, and that's the, the negative background that uh, Christianity, um, at least most Jewish people, feel Christianity persecuted the Jews. And so there's this dark, dark cloud and so whenever someone hears a Jewish person hears the word I'm a sincere Christian, it's not <laughs> in the in the in one sense, they don't hold it against them personally, but in the Jewish mindset you've got crusades and pogroms and, and ultimately the Holocaust. Germany was a Christian country. Martin Luther was, you know, the founder of the Protestant Reformation and he was he had very strong attitudes, uh neg- negative attitudes towards the Jews. And so Jewish people like myself were raised to basically see Christianity as a threat. And so when you see Christians who are fervent in their faith love Jewish people, that just doesn't make sense. That's not what it was supposed to be. They were supposed to, the stronger they are in their faith, the more they persecute Jewish people, or they might even be anti Semites. And when you get the absolute opposite from a true born-again loving Christian, boy, that really can shake a Jewish person and open them to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Mitch, when you were younger, would the idea of becoming a Christian just uh, be something that would 
your family would not have gone for at all? No, I never would have taken it seriously. I I remember once I was uh, watching Channel 11 in New York City because the you know. Um, I think I think it would maybe been yeah I think the Mets were already in existence so the, I think the Mets were going to be on Channel 11 and and I I must have gotten on to early or something and there was a Billy Graham crusade mm, okay I, I didn't know who Billy Graham was and everything else but I knew that he was some kind of Christian and so as soon as he started speaking I looked at him something turned in my stomach and I just turned it off now. I ate my words because I, I actually prayed before Billy Graham preached at his very last uh, crusade, which was held in Queens, New York, which is where I grew up. Mm. And I had the honor of, of praying before he preached. So, but at that moment, you know, it was just, it, I was just so turned off by Christianity, but I don't know how turned off I really was until I saw somebody preaching the gospel. But, you know, that that's some really great spiritual judo waiting to happen. You yeah, know, no because kidding. It, it gets completely turned around when you meet a loving Christian like my friend did. And, boy, she, she, she eventually came back down to Northern California, shared the gospel with me. I thought that she was nuts. I thought she was brainwashed or on drugs. <laughs> and, and so I went up fighting mad to, to Oregon to, you know, to get these people to do to do battle because I was raised more orthodox. She wasn't. I knew the Bible better than her, which which was pretty disastrous because I didn't really know it at all. And she knew less. And so I went in there to battle with these Christians and they were just, you know, just loving me. They smiled. <laughs> they handed me a Bible. It was I couldn't get anybody to fight with me, which is frustrating for a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. That's so funny, Mitch. So as a young Orthodox Jewish uh, man and outside of being born again, what do you think in terms of the, how the story ends when you die? What happens? Did you, you didn't talk about this in your family growing up. So did you have conversations with other people about what happens when you die? That's a, a terrific question. Um, it's hard to explain, but if so imagine if you just read the Old Testament scriptures how much would you know about heaven and hell, really? I mean, there's just not a lot of information there. Right. It's much more explicit in the New Testament. Not that it's not there. I mean, you have in, in, in the book of Daniel, and you have some of the Psalms and, and so on, but there's not a lot of information there. So Jewish people in general, even the more religious, have a very murky view of the afterlife, what mm. happens after you die. Ultra-Orthodox Jews actually have a more developed idea of the coming of the Messiah. We call it Yom HaMashiach, the days of the Messiah. And so the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom, the fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant, and uh, the Messiah uh, ruling, I mean, those things are, are there. But, the, but what happens after you die? Mm, not much information on that. Mm-hmm. Mitch, is helping the religious come to Christ maybe the hardest group to reach? In a sense, Bill, they're the most they're the most internally steeled against the gospel okay. and and, uh, and and so on. But on the other hand, there are so many things that Christians uh, and Messianic Jews like myself have in common with ultra orthodox Jews. They believe the Bible's the word of God. They believe there is a God. They believe God is transcendent and imminent, that he's, he's holy and personal. 
Um, and then even though Jewish people traditionally, this is a big one, Bill, Jewish people do not believe in original sin. Mm. And so Jewish people, Judaism does not teach that man is born, men and women are sinners. There's a different view of Genesis 3. And so there's, there's not the same, Jewish people do not have the same view of the fall in terms of Romans 5 and the uh, hereditary, uh, inheriting, mm-hmm. uh, the hereditary nature of the sin, of the sin nature, actually, or, or inheriting that. And so there's no concept of that. You know, I mean, it almost makes what Nicodemus said make sense. You know, should a man just go back and be born again? I mean, I mean, what what he was really saying is what was wrong with the first time? It's really, really what he was saying. You know, why? Why a second time? Or why being born from above when we were born of a woman? And so there's no concept, but there is a concept of forgiveness. And you see that on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so that's a very important concept. So there's not an idea of having your sins wiped away, even though we read some about some of that in the Psalms. It's not a, an idea of really having your sins forgiven and your nature transformed. Mm-hmm. And so Jewish people, therefore, believe in forgiveness, but then go back to, so to speak, obeying, a, a, having a desire to obey the law. But if we obey the law, it's not like we're totally condemned. We just need to make a to- make repent and and have atonement made for that sin. And an atonement in the Jewish mindset today is not made through blood sacrifice. It's mm-hmm. made through amending your ways and doing the right thing. So, Mitch, if there's no original sin among the, the Jewish mindset, how is the subject of sin introduced into their lives? Really, again, it's uh, very much a day of atonement type of thing. Okay. Um, Leviticus chapter 16 okay. and so on. And so, um, so that's that's so that is really where things um, where things happen. And so, but you know, on the Day of Atonement, though, even if you believe your sins are forgiven, it only lasts for a year. That's yeah, true. And then you have to redo the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let me take a little break, Doctor Mitch Glazer is my guest. He is the president of Chosen People Ministries. Go to chosenpeople.com. You can learn more about Mitch and his amazing and powerful ministry. It's been around for a long time. We'll be right back. If you look up awesome radio guest in the dictionary, you'll see a picture of Mitch Glazer. He's a president of Chosen People Ministries, and their mission is to evangelize and disciple and serve Jewish people everywhere. And Mitch, I'm curious about how you are, how the ministry is caring for Holocaust survivors in Israel. Sure. Um, well, um, actually, a local church in Minneapolis. Wooddale just gave a, a bit of a gift to help us with that ministry. With very, this is a shout out of thank you to Wooddale. Nice, and, and we're very grateful. And uh, and so we're partnering with the Twin Cities on this one. 
And so we, we, there are probably a couple hundred thousand Holocaust survivors left. When we started this ministry 20 years ago, there was mm-hmm. probably closer to a half a million. Uh, but, but, of course, the average age now is in the mid to upper 80s, right. maybe almost into 90. And so we visit them. Uh, they're lonely. Um, I mean, they usually are – they've lost their husband or wife, <clears throat> and, you know, they can't see their children all the time. So uh, we have a center in Sederot, uh where we can have meals and Bible studies, and um, we go house to house. We um, – we are able, even during COVID, we've been going house to house with our Israeli staff, providing some food and some company and mass to mass fellowship, you know. And uh, and so that's been that's been really good. And we've actually seen a number of Holocaust survivors come to faith. And a lot okay. of them speak Rus- Russian and Hebrew. And we have a, a great young staff, believe it or not, of Russian Jewish people and the the younger Russian Jewish people and the elderly Holocaust survivors, particularly the Russian speaking ones, they just adore the young Jew, the young Russian ones. Who's, um, I call it the pinch the cheek ministry. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal, brutal, Bill. I, and, I love it. But it's but it's but again it's it's again I think you're right. It's it's that love that um, when you show that love, you want a hearing. Um, can I give you just a, a I don't know if we have time, but maybe we have just time. a few, few thoughts on, on on how to overcome this terrible historical gap Please. between Jews and, and Christians. Um, number one, build a friendship. I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about showing Jewish people love. In light of the darkness between Judaism and Christianity, the chasm that exists between the two uh, uh, faiths, so to speak— um, what bridges that gap is, is love, and, and that happens through friendship. And so if you have a, a Jewish person in your life, pray about making that person a friend. And, of course, you, you can make a friend by being a friend, and so that's the best way to do it. Secondly, when, if, if you've built that bridge of friendship, don't be afraid of sharing your testimony because Jewish people are – actually, they may not be religious, Bill, but they might be very spiritually sensitive. And that's why so many Jewish people are into a lot of alternative spirituality and New Age and so on. Uh, Jewish people are searching. And so if you share your testimony of how God is real to you, what Jesus, what accepting Jesus did for you, in the, it brought you closer to God. It gave you joy, forgiveness of sin. And talk about your answered prayers. Um, let them know how God is working in your life. That is so powerful. And uh, remember, Jewish people think every Gentile is is a Christian. <laughs> mm. And, so, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so you can use that in your favor. So when when you explain to a Jewish person how you got saved at a certain point in your life, whether it's five or six years old or or fifty six years old, that's astounding to a Jewish person because they think that Christians are made the same way Jews are through their mommies and daddies, you know, and don't be afraid to, to share an answered prayer or how God supernaturally provided uh, for you. And you can be honest about, you know, how uh, you may have suffered during the pandemic and how God has answered prayers of provision or healing um, or giving you hope uh, when, uh, when you were going through a tough time. And so those are really uh, important things uh, to do uh, and to build that bridge of friendship 
and to show the reality of God in your life without the Jewish person feel like you're pressing on them to believe the same as you. Talk about what the Lord has done for you, and Jewish people will figure that out. That's such great counsel, Mitch. And it's uh, always a good reminder to let everyone know, to have their story ready to go at any time. Right. Yeah, and just speak from your heart. You know, sometimes people feel that they've got to give out a little sermonette when they talk to people about God, but really they just have to talk about what God's done in their heart and how it's transformed them. And be honest, you know, be authentic. You know, if, 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 if it's been hard for you or, you know, tell them, tell them, because you can bet that it's been hard for them, you know, whatever it is. And, um, and be patient with a Jewish person. When you're starting to talk to a Jewish person about Jesus, even, you know, when you're just talking about it in relationship to yourself, remember, it's it, it's really foreign to a Jewish person. And we've been taught from our mother's knee, not overtly, but just it just kind of seeps in there, that Jews don't become Christians, you know. And so don't be, don't lose patience. Um, I, I, I would say it's safe to assume that if you tell a Jewish person about Jesus, it's the first time they're hearing the gospel. Wow. Uh, Bill, I don't know how to tell you this, but most Jews don't listen to Christian radio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid they don't. <laughs> You're killing sorry. me, Mitch. I thought sorry. I had a big Jewish audience. I guess I don't. Sorry, sorry. And, and you know, and be need sensitive, as I know so many Christians can be and are, you know. Uh, if it's, it's a, if it's an issue with their kids and if it's an issue with uh, older family members, if it's an issue with uh, a struggling in a marriage or or an illness. I mean, whatever it is, be sensitive to the needs of that Jewish person and, and then try and find a gentle, sensitive, loving way to show how Jesus can meet those needs. The thing is, most Jewish people see God as a little bit far off. Now, that's not classical Judaism, but it, it, it is in practice. And so, you know, we read written prayers in the Hebrew. We don't pray spontaneously in a synagogue and uh, very rarely in person. And so we see God as a little bit far away. You know, that's not what the Old Testament teaches, but, but, but it, that's the way Judea- Judaism shakes out. And so when you talk about God being close, involved in your life, you talk to, to God, you sing to God, you read his word, he speaks to you. When you talk like that to a Jewish person, um, it's it's pretty impressive. And so be natural about your relationship with the Lord. That's such great wisdom, Mitch. Like always, it just requires um, love, patience, kindness, and, and listen and be interested. Kind of simple, and, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I, you know, Bill, to be honest with you, two confessions on radio, I really wish I was a Gentile sometimes, you know? How's that? It's not because of the food. I stick <laughs> I'll stick with matzo ball soup. Okay. But, but, but you have the surprise factor because the Jewish person is expecting a Gentile to not care about Judaism. And so when a Gentile believer says, oh, wow, you know, we, Judaism is my spiritual roots, yeah, it blows the minds of a, mind of a Jewish person. When, it, when a Gentile believer says, oh, you know, 
Israel is so important. It, it, it's, of course, in the Bible. And prophetically, I look at Israel, and, and it helps me understand what God's doing in the, in the world. And I'm looking forward to the second coming of Jesus and the relationship that God has with the Jewish people, with the Jewish people back in the land miraculously after thousands of years. For me, these are all signs of the time. And the Jewish person is saying, what the heck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is not bullet. This is not the kind of Gentile attitude I expected. And, you know, and this deep appreciation of a Gentile believer for the Jewishness of the gospel really is astounding uh, to a Jewish person. And, and, and it, is, it signals a love and appreciation and a respect that they were not expecting. Yeah. Mitch, thank you so much for doing the show. I want to let it, all of us uh, listening to go to chosenpeople.com. You can hear Dr. Glazer's testimony right there on the website. It's really, really good. It's uh, such a so nice to hear your voice again, Mitch. Thanks, Bill. God bless you, brother. God bless you, Dr. Mitch. Okay. Yeah, Dr. Mitch Glazer, again, has been my guest. Chosenpeople.com is where you can learn about him. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much for being with me. I look forward to our time together tomorrow. Have a great night. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.